Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Chapter 1 My dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you supposed the argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons we have largely altered that? Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste your time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous. That it is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. He can argue too. Whereas in really practical propaganda of the kind I am suggesting, he has been shown for centuries to be greatly the inferior of our father below. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason, and once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life, and don't let him ask what he means by real. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit, Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my twenty years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man 
which I had best under my control, and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion. You know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. That this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line. For when I said, quit, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway out the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper, and a number 73 bus going past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd had a narrow escape and in later years was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense for actuality which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. He is now safe in our father's house. You begin to see the point. Thanks to processes which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science, I mean the real sciences, as a defense against Christianity, they will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. There have been sad cases among the modern physicists. If he must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Don't let him get away from that invaluable real life. But the best of all is to let him read no science, but to give him a grand general idea that he knows it all and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember you are there to fuddle him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was your job to teach. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Two. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. 
That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer, with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in a very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side, no matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has no idea of Christians. In his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial, his mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses with his inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity, but also... Remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion, and therefore much harder to tempt. I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, 
if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much easier. All you then have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of these people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted, and thinks that he is showing great humility and consension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. 3. My dear Wormwood, I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother. But you must press your advantage. The enemy will be working from the center outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard, and may reach his behavior to the old lady at any moment. You want to get in first. Keep in close touch with our colleague, Glubos, who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you in that house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance, daily pinpricks. The following methods are useful. 1. Keep his mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something inside him, and his attention is therefore chiefly turned at present to the states of his own mind, or rather to that very expurgated version of them, which is all you should allow him to see. Encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. 2. It is no doubt impossible to prevent his praying with his mother but you have means of rendering the prayers innocuous. Make sure that they are always very spiritual, that he is always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. Two advantages will follow. In the first place, his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins, by which, with a little guidance from you, he can be induced to mean any of her actions which are inconvenient or irritating to himself. Thus, you can keep rubbing the wounds of the day a little sorer, even while he is on his knees. The operation is not at all difficult, and you will find it very entertaining. In the second place, since his ideas about her soul will be very crude and often erroneous, he will, in some degree, be praying for an imaginary person 
And it will be your task to make that imaginary person daily less and less like the real mother, the sharp-tongued old lady at the breakfast table. In time, you may get the cleavage so wide that no thought or feeling from his prayers for the imagined mother will ever flow over into his treatment of the real one. I have had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. <laughs> Three, when two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each one has tones of voice or expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And, of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. Four, in civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words are not offensive, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow in the face. To keep this game up, you and Glubos must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. Your patient must demand that all of his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can both go away convinced or very nearly convinced that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply ask her what time dinner will be and she flies into a temper. Uh, once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. Finally, tell me something about the old lady's religious position. Is she at all jealous of the new factor in her son's life? At all piqued that he should have learned from others and so late what she considers she gave him such good opportunity of learning in childhood? Does she feel is he is making a great deal of fuss about it? Or that he's getting on in very easy terms? Remember, the elder brother in the enemy's story, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. 4. My dear Wormwood... The amateurish suggestions in your last letter warn me that it is high time for me to write to you fully on the painful subject of prayer. You might have spared the comment that my advice about his prayers for his mother proved singularly unfortunate. That is not the sort of thing that a nephew should write to his uncle. 
nor a junior tempter to the undersecretary of a department. It also reveals an unpleasant desire to shift responsibility. You must learn to pay for your own blunders. The best thing, where it is possible, is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult recently reconverted to the enemy's party, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember or to think he remembers the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. That is exactly the sort of prayer we want. And since it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence, as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service, clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. At the very least, they can be persuaded that the bodily positions make no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals, and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If this fails, you must fall back on a subtler misdirection of his intention. Whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, we are defeated. But there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him towards themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings thereby the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice this, this is what they are doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling, and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. But of course, the enemy will not meantime be idle. Wherever there is prayer, there is danger of his own immediate action. He is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits and to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. But even if he defeats your first attempt at misdirection, we have a subtler weapon. The humans do not start from that di direct perception of him which we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare, which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives. If you look into your patient's mind when he is praying, you will not find that. 
If you examine the object to which he is attending, you will find that it is a composite object containing many quite ridiculous ingredients. There will be images derived from pictures of the enemy as he appeared during the discreditable episode known as the Incarnation. There will be a vaguer, perhaps quite savage and puerile, images associated with the other two persons. There will even be some of his own reverence and of bodily sensations accompany it, objectified and attributed to the object revered. I have known cases where that the patient called his god was actually located up and to the left at the corner of the bedroom ceiling or inside his own head or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. You may even discourage him to attach great importance to the correction and improvement of his composite object, and to keep it steadily before his imagination during the whole prayer. For if he ever comes to make the distinction, if ever he consciously directs his prayers, not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, our situation is for the moment desperate. Once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or, if retained, retained with a full recognition of their merely subjective nature, the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence, there with him in the room and never knowable by him as he is known by it. Why, then it is that the uh, incalculable may occur. In avoiding this situation, this real nakedness of the soul in prayer, you will be helped by the fact that the humans themselves do not desire it as much as they suppose. <laughs> There's such a thing as getting more than they bargain for. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.